Bokotov, good morning everyone. Apologize for the tardiness this morning. We have a uh, lot going on. <laughs> a lot going on and and uh, anyway, had to make a couple of errands on the way in to the synagogue this morning, so I'm running a little bit behind the times, as it were. So glad you're with me, Baruch Hashem. <clears throat> it's going to be a good day, and we're going to have an opportunity to do a little tour study here and look at the life of Sarah again, Chaye Sarah, uh, get into some um, a little bit of the third Aliyah, hopefully. I want to touch back on some things about Sarah, and then I want to get into the third Aliyah as best I can and uh, try to look at some uh, issues there as well as Eliezer and this uh, Aliyah, the third Aliyah, is um, <clears throat> going out to seek a wife uh, for Isaac, Baruch Hashem. Now, tomorrow's Aliyah, just a little bit of a, uh, a cliffhanger here. I pray with God's help, Beis Ras Hashem. I pray that tomorrow we will have, for the first time ever, a special guest. Well, we never had a guest on the Aliyah, actually, ever. But tomorrow, I'm praying that we will have a very special guest, uh, a surprise guest, who will be with us for the Aliyah, Bez Radashim. So uh, hopefully I can work this out. I, uh, the person I'm thinking about doesn't know it yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, a very big surprise. It's going to be amazing. Uh, we can make this happen. So God willing, that will happen. So stay tuned. Tell all your friends. It's a once in a lifetime experience. Comes and goes. Baruch Hashem. So hopefully we'll be able to work it out and, um, we won't have any issues. So we'll be looking forward to that, Baruch Hashem. All right, so let's look at, <clears throat> as I mentioned yesterday, we didn't really get anywhere near, not even close, to looking at the first and second Aliyah. So I just want to go back and look at a few uh, insights as it relates to the life of Sarah. And, and, and just uh, touch back on some things, kind of hit, hit some highlight points. Um, some things that we can um, maybe glean from the life of Sarah. Uh, let's first and foremost, <clears throat> let's look at this insight here. And uh, this is some insights that are compiled uh, from the Midrash Rabbah as it re relates to Sarah Emenu, uh, Sarah our mother. Now, you, uh, as we say in the South, you women folk. You women folk among us, uh, typically we encourage you to purchase the Art Skull uh, Woman's Siddur. And uh, many of you have a copy of this. Some of you don't yet have a copy, and I would encourage you to get a copy. It pretty much has most of the things that the, uh, the Art Scroll, we call it the Men's Siddur, but it's really not a Men's Siddur per se. It's just the Art Scroll Complete Siddur. But we encourage the women to get the women's siddur because there are some things in the women's siddur that are, some prayers, some things that are specific to women 
that obviously would not be uh, so specific to men. But the art school women's center, as we call it, is actually called the Ohel Sarah uh, women's center. Ohel Sarah. And the reason it's called Ohel Sarah is because Ohel is a word in, in Ivrail for tent. For tent. It's the tent of Sarah. So the women's center is actually named after Sarah Imenu. But it's not just that, but also her, her tent. Why? Because her tent, evidently, uh, Sarah and, and Abraham were of, of such wealth that Sarah had her own tent. She had her own living quarters. And today, it's the same thing. It's just that a man has a media room, and the woman has the rest of the house. But back in the ancient times, the woman had her own tent. And so her tent was like a tabernacle. Sarah's tent was like a mishkan. Mishkan, we say in Hebrew, a mishkan mayat, a small tabernacle. This is why, in Judaism, it's, it's taught that uh, our homes should be a Mishkan, a Mishkan Me'at. You know, um, typically, now I say typically because I, there's, there's a dichotomy here that I want to mention. Uh, and it's been brought out not by me, but by other Jewish uh, authors and speakers and so on. But typically, in the Greco-Roman Christian world, Christian faith, has traditionally evolved around the church. Um, around the church building. The church has, be, is, has, has really, in, 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 in the Christian faith, has replaced the temple, Hasveshalom, God forbid. And this is why you have the Christian priests, Catholicos, uh, that wear the little um, beanie hats. They, is this, ours is a keeper, theirs is called the beanie. <laughs> I don't know what they call it officially, but whatever. The reason they wear that is because they're trying to mimic the headwear of the true priesthood of, of uh, Judaism. And so everything revolves around the church. That's the mentality of the faith. But not so in Judaism. In Judaism, the synagogue is... We say synagogue, and uh, synagogue is actually a Greek word. Synagoga, right? Is that how you say it in Spanish? I said it properly. Cindy, is that correct? Synagoga? Uh, place of assembly is how you what it means in Hebrew. It's called a Beit Knesset. Beit Knesset, a place, a house, literally a house of assembly. This is why uh, in Israel the governmental body is called the Knesset. It's assembly, the assembly. So in Hebrew, a synagogue is a Beit Knesset. We say synagogue. That's that's really, it's. 
if you're if you're speaking Hebrew, pretty much you're going to say Beit Knesset. But if you're speaking English or whatever, we always say synagogue. And another word that's used quite frequently is the word shul, which is Yiddish, actually. And it's uh, from the German word that means school. So the point is, is that the synagogue is a place of learning. The synagogue is a place of learning. It's a place of assembly. It's also sometimes referred to as the Beit Midrash, the house of study. Okay, sometimes very more rarely Beit Tefila, the place the the house of prayer. That's correct. Shoshana Brunner says Keilat is the congregation. That's true. You should know that in the writings in, of, of the uh, apostolic writings, the word church. Some of y'all know this already, but in case there's somebody who's watching who doesn't know, uh, the word church is never used. That was a word that came along. Um, came about many, many, many uh, centuries later. And it's actually a word that at its root means circus. And I'll leave it there. Um, but in the writings from the apostles, um, the place where believers met was always called a Beit Knesset or a synagogue. And the group of people that met at such a place was called the Kehillah. And that's nothing new. There's nothing new there as well, because the, the, the congregation of Israel is referred to in Torah and Tanakh as Kela. And the synagogue has been around since like 3,000 years. Okay. So um, anyway, but in Judaism, our faith doesn't revolve around the synagogue. The synagogue is just a place where we meet. The synagogue is a holy place for sure. It's a set-apart set and sanctified place. That's true. But it's not the temple. It's inappropriate, by the way, to say, where do you go to temple? That's a Reformed Jewish thing because Reformed Jews refer to their places of assembly as temples. And that's because Reformed Judaism doesn't believe, God forbid, that, that there, there will be another temple. They don't want another temple they're not interested in another temple. It's it's all messed up. So we don't meet. There's no. We don't meet at the temple. Some some people, from time to time, I'll have non-Jews say, "Where do you go to temple?" And I'll say, "Well, we actually go to synagogue." And so I, I try to do it politely, of course, because they don't know they, all they you know they don't know they don't know. So I'm I don't get offended by it. I'm just trying to help them very gently, as gently as I can, understand the different nomenclature. So it's, it doesn't revolve around there because everything is supposed to happen at the home. The home in Judaism is the central place of worship. So a lot of people, for instance, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, people would say, well, you know, you might be with your family. So, let me let me let me throw this out there as a scenario, and let's see if if you've ever heard anybody say it or whatever. You're with your family, and they're at church, or, you, or there's a family at church. I can put it that way. And dad or mom, either way, say to the kids, "Hey, stop doing that, guys. We're in church," implying that at home that's kind of allowed, but up here in this sanctified space, that's not allowed. 
Judaism doesn't think that way. Why? Because the, the, the Mikdash Me'at, the little tabernacle, is at home. If it's not okay at home, it's certainly not okay at the shul. We don't look at our homes as like the secular place and the synagogue as like the holy place. Now you say, well, some people might have that mentality. Yeah, I know, and it's and, the, and that, but that doesn't come from a Jewish way of thinking. It comes from a Greek way of thinking. Your home should be a sanctified space. You should be concerned about what comes into it. The everything about it. It's your that is your tabernacle, and that is what Sarah's tent was all about. Okay. So it says Sarah was the classic Jewish mother. That's true. In fact, she was the prototype, if you will. I guess that'd be the right word, or she was the she's the first Jewish mother, really, actually. All mothers go back to Sarah. So you say, for instance, so Jewish Jewishness comes from the mother's side. If you don't have a Jewish mother, you really halakhically cannot claim to be Jewish. Now, that's just a matter of halakha. I'm not, as my daughter would say, throwing shade. I'm just simply pointing out a matter of halakha. Okay? This is important because... Well, for instance, let me give an example. Should I bring this up? Should I say this? Okay, it might help somebody. So I happen to know of a real-life scenario of a Messianic Jewish rabbi who I know personally of a pretty large and influential place who teaches that if you're Jewish, you're supposed to do Jewish things. I would say follow the Torah, but, but really Messianic Judaism doesn't really believe that, actually. But that's a whole other topic. Let's, let's put that aside for a second. Let's just say that if you're Jewish, you should do Jewish things. Because that's pretty much what they do. And then if you're a Messianic Gentile, so-called, then you don't have to, or more usually you, you probably shouldn't. Now, this gentleman would say, I'm Jewish. So, you know, the, the caste system, it's like the class system there. But I happen to know this person personally, and I, I know for a fact that his mother is not Jewish. His father is. But his mother, definitely not. Okay. I, okay. But here's the problem I have. Okay. Otherwise, I wouldn't care. But here's the problem. Halakhically, he's not Jewish. So he's... And again, I want to emphasize, if it wasn't for the creation of two classes of people, I wouldn't care. It wouldn't bother me. Like, whatever. But when you start trying to say, I'm Jewish, and you kind of look down your proverbial nose at people who aren't, 
And I know they don't try to do that, but that's what happens just instinctively. Um, and by the way, this reminds me as an aside, as a total random thought. Always remember that you're special like everybody else. Okay, so anyway, so that's the problem. So Jewishness comes through the mother, halakhically, according to Torah law. So if your mother is Jewish, then it means her mother is Jewish, and her mother is Jewish, and her mother is Jewish, going all the way back to Sarah. The message with the Messianic example was, you know, we have to, and I want you to be educated about this because a lot of times people in the, because a lot of people who watch this program are not Jewish by birth and they don't, they've been told they can never could become Jewish and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is not true. But you can go through conversion and be Jewish a hundred percent, just like Moses <clears throat> or Sarah. Um, but a lot of times people will, will feel instinctively inferior Messianic Gentiles, quote-unquote, I don't believe in Messianic Gentiles, I'm just using that term for point of argument, is that they very times feel inferior, and rightfully so. Not that they are inferior, I don't mean that, but come on, when somebody is telling you, hey, I'm a Jew and God wants me to do these special things, and you're a non-Jew, and you don't have to, or he doesn't really care, or he'd probably rather you not, that is going to naturally create an inferiority complex. That's like saying, I have a, I'm a natural-born son, so dad feeds me steak. You are kind of like living with us. You're not really, you're like part of the family, but not really. You're kind of quasi-adopted, but you don't have our last name. And so they give you, you know, ratty leftovers. But hey! We're all eating together, right? So you should feel happy about that, right? And a lot of the times, the Messianic Gentiles are like, yeah, right, huh? I feel good, huh? That steak sure does look good. Can I have some? No, you can't have any. You're a quasi-adopted people. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Look, you know what I'm talking about. And it, it's, it's horrible. But I want you to now be equipped... So that you can understand, you know, what this means. This is why when you become a convert, maybe soon, officially, formally, you can't just declare you're a convert. You have to, it's like saying I declare I'm married, but you haven't had a ceremony. That confuses a lot of people. If I believe in my heart and I really want to follow this way of life, why do I have to go through a ceremony? Well, let me ask you a question. Suppose that you see somebody you want to be married to. They want to be married to you, okay? So you both agree we should be married. Can you just stand up in front of the congregation and say, I love this person, and they love me back. And we decided we should be married. And everybody says, Mazel tov. And then you tell the congregation, so we're married. Can't do that. So what happens is you stand up and say, I love this person. I committed to them. They love me back. They're committed to me. We want to be married. Everybody says, Mazel tov. And so we're going to have a marriage on such and such date, and we'll be under the hoopah, and from that point forward, we're officially married. And everybody says, awesome. That's conversion. So you say to God, I love you. He loves you back. I believe in Yeshua, Baruch Hashem. I want to be part of the family. He says, I want you to be part of the family. 
So now what do you got to do? You got to go to the chuppah. This is why in Judaism, the waters of the mikvah is, is related to like it's a chuppah. When you go up under the waters of the mikvah, you're going up under the waters of the chuppah. It's a public ceremony to declare, just like you have a marriage. It confuses people because it makes it sound like, you know, you're not official. But when you use the marriage scenario, they're like, oh, that makes total sense. Of course it does. Because you can't just stand up and say I'm married. People would think you're weird. Okay? That's weird. It's not even, in a lot of places, it's not even legal. You just got to get up and say, okay, we're going to have a ceremony. And you say, what's the difference? Ceremony, no ceremony. I love them. They love me. Under the hoopah, did we love each other differently? Well, no. Technically, no. But I will tell you this, because I've done lots of weddings. There is an anointing under the hoopah. There's an anointing under the hoopah. I've talked to so many... Um, so many uh, couples, and I tell them, listen, when you get up to the, to, the, to the platform, you're going to freak out. You're going to look at me. You're not going to know what you're supposed to do. You're not, the woman's going to circle you. She's going to have no, no, no idea how many times she's going around. She could be 50 times. She doesn't know. You're going to, I'm going to pass you the wine. You're going to look at it like it's a calf at a new gate. You're not going to know what you're doing. Just, and I tell them, just pay attention to me. And the reason is because the anointing is so strong. Yeah, you're nervous, but that's really not it. It's the anointing. Because Hashem is there. It's a big deal. And I've always said, it's funny because I've had so many couples say to me, oh, no, it's good. We're good. We're good. Oh, look, I, I, I got it. Okay, okay great. And then they get up there and their eyes are like bulging out. They're looking at me like, oh, my God, where am I? So that's the, there's, a, there's an anointing. And when you go through conversion, yes, you've already committed. Yes, you've already made your uh, declaration. But going through the, through the mikvah, going through that ceremony, man, there's a powerful anointing there. So anyway, back to Sarah's temp temple. Sarah's temple was her tent, her place of living. Okay. For some reason, when you wrote Under the Hoopa, Shoshana, I, I wanted to sing a song. Under the Hoopa, I was confirmed under the Hoopa. Okay, that's, <laughs> sorry. Sarah was the classic Jewish mother, first, and the only matriarch who is named as one of the seven prophetesses quoted in Scripture. Sarah was a prophet, and as somebody pointed out yesterday, um, she was actually a greater prophet than Abraham. This shouldn't surprise us. Men are the, the head of the home, but a lot of power, a lot of anointing comes from the, from the female. And it makes sense why. Because the female of our species, um, in the relationship, is directly related to the Shekinah of God. Or as you might say, the Ruach HaKodesh. That's how it's supposed to be. So, gentlemen should not be dismissive of their wives. And it's easy for us gentlemen to do because we're logical and we have so much wisdom. And I'm not being facetious, we do. And we're, we typically look at things typically more calmly, you know, uh, more analytically. And sometimes it can be easy to dismiss the female because she is typically more excitable She's typically more... Now, again, I'm painting with a broad brush. There might be women screaming at, the, at, the, at their phones or computers or televisions going, I'm not, I'm very calm, I'm analytical. And that that's maybe very well true. I'm talking here broadly and generally. Of course, she's saying that as she's screaming and crying at her computer, but I digress. <laughs> 
I'm half kidding. I'm half kidding. No, I'm not. But anyway, so, you know, she, she is more emotional. But the thing is, is that in the relationship, she is that part of man which represents the Ruach of God. And this is why um, Rabbi Shalom Arush says that men should listen to their wives because Hashem uses the wife very often as a voice box from heaven. Why? Because she is instinctively more directed or more connected, I should say, to the Ruach of God. It's much more easy for women to be spiritual and outgoing, and men should not look down on that. It doesn't mean that men shouldn't be spiritual and so on either. It just means that they're more naturally inclined to it. Okay? So anyway, it says, Her home was no ordinary tent. It had extraordinary qualities. A cloud of holiness hovered over it. Doors which proclaimed their openness to all passerbys. In other words, Sarah's tent, Sarah was, had a very hospitable place. Okay? Uh, a blessing in her dough, her challah dough was blessed. It stayed fresh all week, just like the Rebetzine. You can eat the Rebetzine's challah on Thursday afternoon. It tastes like she just baked it. A Shabbat lamp that remained lit all week long. In other words, the uh, candles... This, the, we say candles, but really Shabbat lamp uh, was lit by by Sarah Imanu, and they stayed uh, all they stayed uh, lit all week long. It says these miracles were not Abraham's doing; they ceased with Sarah's death. So these miracles that we just enumerated here are a consequence of the holiness, the Kedusha, of Sarah. She's a very holy woman. There was a special significance in these blessings. And by the way, just as an aside, you know, I mentioned about the women who are <coughs> uh, naturally inclined more like the Ruach HaKodesh. This is why, you know, men have a lot of physical power, typically, much more than a, a female. You know, it's just a reality. Um, typically, and again, there's always, there's, these, there's that rare exception out there, um, you know. Uh, but typically speaking, they're... You know, physically, uh, a man can can lift lift ten times more than a woman. And and again, there's an exception. I know a, a wonderfully. My wife and I uh, know a, a a wonderful, very very sweet, very kind uh, person at our gym, who a female who is a uh, like a female power lifter. And uh, for a woman, she she lifts an incredible amount of weight. Uh, and, and I've seen her lift a, a more than some gentlemen uh, in, in, in the room who are, who are, you know, just getting started. Uh, but that's kind of apples to oranges because she's more or less a professional. Uh, but, but when you have somebody who is a, pr a professional man on her level, uh, 
there's no comparison. And, and that's not to put anybody down. That's just a fact of life. Okay, so the advantage of the man is that he has the physical power. The advantage of the woman is that she, she has <clears throat> the, you might say, I guess you'd say spiritual power. Women have the power of influence. Uh, this is why, and it's just a fact, okay? I suppose it's possible for a man to seduce a woman. I guess that's happened. But if we're honest, right, it's usually in the context of a woman seducing a man, right? That's usually what happens, okay? Typically. Uh, it's not very often that women are so easily seduced by men. And, and I know it, it, it can happen, it does happen, but, but typically it's, it's, the, it's the other way around. And that goes back just simply to the gift I'm talking about. So I wanted to say with that, this is why women, whereas men have to temp, we have to temper our strength, right? We have to say, okay, if my gift is strength, then I have to use it responsibly. And I have to use it for the right reasons, okay? Same thing with a woman. Women have the gift of influence, the gift of... Let me just go ahead and use the word seduction, but I don't want to use... I don't want... In this context, I don't want seduction to be heard as a negative. In, in this context. So a woman has to understand that's her superpower. And so in the relationship with her man, she has to be careful that she doesn't utilize her superpower uh, improperly. Do you understand what I mean? We both have superpowers, and we have to learn how to use them godly. And so that's my point. That's what I was getting to. That's, just, that's, that's the whole thing there, is that a, a woman's purpose is to influence the man for the sake of heaven, not manipulate him. And I just think, I, I, I think, just off of you know life experience here, that that tends to be a a uh, something that women sometimes fall prey to. And men, we have our own set of issues. We have our own problems that we we try to control through our sense of power, through our sen- sense of of, of 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 mental prowess. We try to con- control the situation or dominate it or whatever. And we sometimes have power a uh, difficulty relinquishing and hearing uh, the female's opinion and so on. So we have our own issues, right? It's not a one-way street. Uh, but I think it's important for us to think about these things, these gifts that God has given us as superpowers and how to use them properly for, uh, indeed, for the sake of heaven. So continuing on here, just a few more minutes. <clears throat> Um, you know, there was, my wife has other superpowers like intense beauty. Okay. She's beautiful. Okay. So, (laughs) but seriously, she needs to be careful of that. Uh, there is a special significance in this blessing. Okay. We're going to wrap this up. We just got a few more minutes here. Um, actually we don't have any more minutes, but we're still going to wrap it up. There was a special significance in these blessings. They parallel the miracle of the Mishkan. This is what I really wanted to get to. 
they parallel the the miracle of the Michigan. So again, Sarah's tent is like her tabernacle. And lady, your home needs to become your tabernacle. And sir, you need to respect that. And by the way, um, us guys don't like to hear this, but it's true. The man is the head of the house. But by the way, that requires leadership. Is this thing on? Can you hear me? Sir, please listen. You can't pretend to be the head of the house if you're not leading. And that means spiritually. Right? This is one of the faults that we men have. We want to be the, the leader of the house as we're sitting on the, our, our recliner watching the ball game. Well, guess what? That's not how, that's not what God meant. God made your wife as a helper against you. That's literally what the Hebrew says. What it means is, is that when you're being a godly, righteous, spiritual man, she will be there and she will be your Robin to Batman. Okay? She will be kicking some tail with you and making it, making it happen. However... If you're not being spiritual, she is supposed to be pushing against you, getting you back on the path. That's her job. And so you think she's being a nag, but in fact, she's doing what heaven commanded her to do. So don't be that guy who's trying to be the leader of the home, but a spiritual lackey. Don't be that guy who's trying to tell your family to charge the hill while you're in a fetal position in the cave. So step up. So also I want to say that the woman, the, the home is the woman's domain. This is Jewish teaching. Meaning that it's her house. I mean, it's your house too, and she should be respectful of your opinion. But really, you know, the color she wants it to be and the furniture she wants to have and the arrangements, really, she gets to choose. Now, a proper, healthy relationship, if the husband really likes a color or something, the woman should take that into consideration. If he really likes a style of furniture, and, you know, love should, should rule and, and there should be compromise and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, when it comes to those kind of things, it's her decision. And the guy should be okay with that. You have to be okay with that. Why? Because the Torah commands us that it's our responsibility to provide them a home, not their responsibility to provide us a home. But a woman should have three square meals for her husband every day. Amen. I made that up, but it's true. All right. The cloud represents God's own presence, the same presence which rested on the mission. Only one other human being had a comparable sign of holiness hovering over his private residence, and that was Moses. Sarah's open doors symbolize a temple, which was a repository of holiness beckoning every Jew to come and draw closer to God and his agency. There was a blessing in her dough. Her guests ate and then went away with lingering feelings of satisfaction that kept hunger far away from them. In the sanctuary of the temple, loaves of showbread were placed every Shabbat. All week long, they remain as warm and fresh as they were when they sat on the sacred table. By the way, this is why we should be hospitable. We should expect that when people eat our food, that they will have within them feelings of holiness if we are holy people and made the food with a spirit of generosity. 
The sages teach that the bread of the temple was the source of prosperity for the entire nation. Because it was blessed, it never became stale, unlike the material things which, were, which would, would deteriorate. The, the, and finally, the lamp that remained lit was like the western lamp of the temple menorah, burning longer than all the others, and it represented the light of the world. And Sarah's candles represented the Torah that went forth from her tent. End of our Aliyah. Think good, and it will be good. Bless Hashem for His provision. He has made a way for us when we didn't know there was a way. And we are grateful for everything that he has done for us. God bless you and thank you for being here. Remember tomorrow, Bezras Hashem, we will have a very, very special surprise guest here on the Yalea. Do not miss it. You're going to be amazed. So it's going to be amazing. So look forward to seeing you tomorrow with God's help. Perfectly that'll work out. And we'll make it happen. So shalom aleichem, everybody. Look forward to seeing you in La Manana.